Uh, right in the thick of fall we are. It's kind of a gloomy and dark day out here in uh, New Jersey. Uh, and um, uh, the reason we're getting late, well, you know, there was uh, kids' school stuff this morning, and uh, I decided to, well, I decided to hang out with my wife for a little while longer because we're not going to be able to see each other for most of the day today. So, sorry, you come in a very distant second uh, to uh, my wife in the priority zone. Uh, but I'm glad to be here with you nonetheless for our time looking at God's Word together. And today we are looking at uh, Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Now, um, Isaiah 5 is, um, well, it's an interesting passage because I think um, you're going to see quite uh, easily uh, why it fits in very well with our gospel text for this upcoming Sunday. Um the gospel text for this upcoming Sunday comes out of Matthew chapter 21, verses uh, 33 through, I can tell you here in just a second, 33 all the way to the end of the chapter uh, to verse 46. And it's a parable. And as you know, uh, if you know me at all, you know that I love, love, love the parables of Jesus. Uh, co-wrote a book all about at least some of them with uh, with my my co-host on 30 Minutes in the New Testament, uh, Dan Price. Um, and uh, it's something that we have both preached on quite a bit, including the, the, the one that we're looking at this upcoming Sunday, which is the parable of the tenants. Now, what is the parable of the tenants all about? Well, it basically, to summarize it, uh, the master of a house plants a vineyard, leases that vineyard out to tenants to take care of it, um, and uh, these tenants end up being quite wicked. And instead of treating the land in a just and fair manner, they abuse it. And so uh, the master of the house sends various servants to come and check up on uh, the, the land from time to time, on the vineyard from time to time, and each time he does so, uh, they are either beat up or they are uh, treated horribly and abused. And then eventually the master of the vineyard sends his very own son and they kill his son. And so the parable ends with the vineyard being taken away from the tenants by the master who is very angry at the injustice that they have committed and the unrighteousness that they have committed. Now, you don't have to be a Bible scholar to figure out the picture that's being created for us. Uh, the master of the vineyard is clearly God. His son is clearly Jesus. The servants that had come before Jesus are the prophets. And of course, the wicked tenants are basically the religious leadership of uh, Jerusalem. And for that matter, um, uh, the broader Israel um, that uh, we read about all throughout the Old Testament. It is a constant problem that Israel and Jerusalem, Judah, the whole lot of them, whether it be the southern or northern kingdom, are constantly running away from the true God after idols, constantly treating the people underneath them as less than. And so Isaiah comes in, Isaiah 5, written hundreds and hundreds of years before Matthew, and basically creates the similar picture for us. And it's a bit of a warning from God as to what he's going to do with those who have abused his vineyard. And so with that by way of introduction, let's hear what Isaiah says in Isaiah 5 verses 1 through 7. He says, let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it 
and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. You could translate that sour grapes, grapes that were basically no good for making wine and that didn't taste good at all. But the thing I want you to notice in these first two verses is how uh, carefully the master of the vineyard, God, uh, takes care of his vineyard, how much he cares about the work that he's doing as the owner of the vineyard. He has a love song concerning the vineyard. Uh, he, he, he's dug it and cleared it of stones so that there would be no impediment to growth. And he planted it with the most choice vines, built a watchtower. He did everything necessary for it to flourish. And yet instead, this vineyard that was supposed to be this thing of beauty that produced wonderful grapes and delicious wine, instead produces nothing but sour grapes unfit for wine. This is clearly a picture of what God is saying about Israel, what he's saying about Jerusalem. He's saying, I've done everything necessary for you, and yet you have taken what was done for you and you have squandered it. And now the only fruit that seems to be coming out of you is sour and good for nothing. And so he says, verse 3, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard than I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. Well, this is a dreadful condemnation from God over the nation of Israel. He is clearly saying he is going to allow judgment to come. Notice the language of taking the hedges away. This is uh, the kind of place that we get that all too familiar phrase that we're used to hearing in prayer uh, when we ask for a hedge of protection around somebody. It's something that it's one of those Christian lingo things that we've just, you know, use almost unthinkingly. Uh, we ask God to provide a hedge of protection. Well, here he is saying, I'm going to remove the hedge. And what does the hedge do? Well, it keeps it keeps animals out from eating uh, the grapes on the vine and it keeps uh, intruders from uh, running roughshod over the vineyard. He's saying, I'm going to take it away. I'm going to take it away because you you have abused this vineyard. And he's really speaking to the religious leader, leadership of Jerusalem at the time. But it goes on and on and on. I mean, and so God does allow for these various periods of judgment throughout the nation of Israel's history, throughout Judah's history, whether it be uh, the Assyrians with Israel or Babylon, uh, whether it be then the Medo-Persian Empire, and then you move on to the Roman Empire, uh, there just seems to be one foreign occupier after another that God allows into his vineyard, into the midst of his people. And it's not that there aren't faithful people within the midst of Israel. It's that those who are over Israel seem never to learn. They seem never to be brought to repentance. And so they constantly 
constantly run away or blame the messenger who warns them like Isaiah and it gets them in trouble. Indeed, if tradition is accurate, uh, Isaiah eventually was sawn in two. Yes, sawed in two um, because of his refusal to stop preaching the word of God and to warn his fellow countrymen of what was coming as a result of their rampant rebellion. So this is serious stuff. And we know that quite literally in AD 70, this judgment does take place over Jerusalem. When they finally do indeed reject the son and kill the son, Jesus warns them that not one stone will be left upon another of, uh, of God's temple. And indeed that happens. We know from the accounts of Josephus and other Roman historians, Jewish historians, that uh, not one stone was left upon another in Jerusalem as a result of their continual rebellion. So, so really, really, you know, kind of devastating news here. I mean, this is uh, what we call the law in its full effect. This is you sinned, you rebelled, and now you're going to reap the whirlwind for, for, why, uh, for what you did. And then he says, verse 7, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. You notice that? He still says, I... I st they're my pleasant planting. I love them. I care for them. Uh, but what's the problem? He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Unfortunately, this was the truth. Now, in Hebrew, it is interesting, and I'm, I'm not going to pronounce the words for you but in Hebrew, but uh, there is a little bit of a wordplay that you wouldn't pick up here on uh, in English. Uh, the word for justice and bloodshed sound almost identical, and the word for righteousness and outcry sound almost identical in Hebrew. And so there is a sense in which God is saying, I asked for this, and instead I found this, I mean, he's, he's making a very clear point to the Hebrew reader of Isaiah. So what do we say about all this? How does this all relate to us today? I suppose, I mean, it's, it's kind of easy for us to uh, look at the wickedness of uh, the various leadership within Israel and Jerusalem, especially around the time of Christ, and to go to point our fingers at them and to blame others for all the wickedness and wrongdoing that they have committed against God's people and against God's vineyard. And there's a sense in which that, that could be justified. But I, I got to tell you, before we start doing that, it really is always a better idea to instead look at ourselves. Because we are all too prone to doing the same things that the wicked tenants did in the parable of the tenants, and frankly, that the leadership of Israel did throughout the Old Testament. We'd like to think that we've moved beyond that, that we're better than that. But the truth is, God can send his word, and I'm very capable of rejecting it still today, and I'm one of the deliverers of this word. And the truth is, I can hear God tell me something that I don't want to hear, and very easily close up my ears and I can very easily fall into the same traps that the wicked tenants do. So I don't want to read this and say, well, shame on them and shame on you. 
Now, when I when I hear the word of God in its full force come at me with the law like this, I want to say, woe is me. And I want to acknowledge that deep down in my heart, I've got the same kind of wicked tendencies that led the leadership of Israel and Jerusalem to do what they did. Because it's only then when we recognize that we're worthy of judgment too, that we're not any any more worthy of salvation in and of ourselves. Well, that then, then we can learn to be people that cry out for mercy, to acknowledge just honestly, to live lives quorum Deo before the face of God with honesty. There's no hiding. There's no pretending. There's no facade. There's no self-righteousness. There's no fake holiness in front of the world as opposed to in my private life. It just is a continual life of saying, Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner, as the tax collector did when he banged his chest, unable to even come into the temple due to his sense of unworthiness. And what does Jesus say will happen to people that have that cry? Rather than stubbornly refusing to hear that they have indeed committed sin that's worthy of judgment, when we come honestly, Jesus says, that person goes home justified. Indeed. Jesus has ensured that will happen for us every day. This is why Martin Luther said the life of the Christian is one of daily repentance. We never stop repenting because we never love God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength perfectly. No, we don't. We certainly don't love our neighbor as ourselves perfectly. And so as long as that's the case, and dear viewer, it will be the case until your body ceases breathing here and you go into glory, we ought to spend it acknowledging that we need mercy every day and celebrating the fact that that mercy is available to us every day. As Lamentations tells us, his mercies are new every morning, every single morning. And that that is what will sustain us so that we would not be abusers of the vineyard that God has cultivated, but we would be people that learn to love it and take care of it as he does.